Something is rotten in Denmark, as the famous Shakespearean play once recounted. In an age of near instantaneous access to place and substance, and an overabundance of people sharing their amazing experiences with it, people in America report being less happy, taking longer to form families, and an overall feeling that something is wrong. By contrast, the Amish, living on the very same land as most other Americans, report being the happiest in the country, while completely rejecting the social and technological norms of those around them. According to an article in Quartz, when sociologists were really diving into the Amish culture in the 1960s and 1970s, 75% of Amish children would decide to become Amish adults. The most recent statistics show that 95% are now choosing to join the Amish church. Clearly, the English, as the Amish still refer to the Americans around them, are doing it wrong. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. The military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time to The Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Welcome back to those of you who have been with us before. Uh, for those who are new to the show, uh, we try to cover topics that are of, uh, of note to the country, that are historical in nature, uh, but also are not examined in a way that we think is handled correctly. Uh, and one of the themes that I think we've gotten into a lot in the past is focusing on the negatives. But today I wanted to focus on, in my opinion, what uh, is some aspect of our society that is positive, and that is the Amish. But before I do that, I want to introduce my co-hosts, uh, Hank and Hans, are here tonight. Uh, say hello, please. Hello, everyone. Hey, guys. And I have, uh, I'm a little bit behind on the donations, but I did see that there were two donations on Bitcoin. I wanted to thank uh, the amounts were... Actually, I don't have the uh, the page right in front of me, but uh, there were two, uh, and they were roughly for about $20 each uh, in the past uh, couple times. So anybody who's donated, uh, again, if you'd like a copy of our book, uh, Exit Strategy, just email myth20c at tunanota.com. You get a free copy as a thank you for supporting the show, listening to us, being an overall friend. We always appreciate that. All right, so on the topic of the Amish, um, I've always been fascinated by this sort of parallel society that exists uh, in almost a different time, if not uh, also a place uh, within our sort of overall borders of the country. Uh, they have obviously their community set up around agricultural areas where they practice farming, they go to church, they have uh, basic craftsmanship type businesses, uh, and they, they're, they're very prolific in terms of how many people they've uh, started from and grown to. Uh, one of the statistics that is very striking to me, and th th by the way, they're actually, uh, if not the uh, one of the most uh, 
most fast uh, fast growing groups in the United States. I think Muslims and them are the number uh, number ones and twos, depending on what. Well, Muslims have the uh, advantage, if you want to call it that, of uh, large levels of relative immigration as well. And uh, right. to my knowledge, there's no uh, no Amish uh, swamping our uh, our ports of entry. Right, and and we'll hopefully get into the history in uh, a short while, uh, but. Broadly speaking, the Amish that came from uh, the German-speaking part of Switzerland uh, in the 1700s, thereabouts, the United States. And they settled in Pennsylvania, and that's still the largest community in the country. But what is really amazing about that is that their starting population was roughly 5,000 people when they, they came to the to the colonies, uh, which became the United States. And then today they're estimated to be about 342,000. So if you want to plot that on a chart, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's an astounding uh, growth rate compared to the actual, I think it's a negative uh, growth rate if you just look at the, the sort of white population of the United States. If you strip out all the immigration, we're below replacement level. And the Amish have six to seven kids on average somewhere in between six and seven is i'm guessing what the actual average is and the 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 statistics also show that the amish uh, not only are the happiest group in the united states but they're also one of the healthiest if not at least as healthy as everybody else in the country and what is amazing about that is that and one of the most uh, stereotypical things that people know about the amish is they don't really use very much modern technology and with all we were talking before the show about the uh, Obamacare uh, affordable health care act the most inappropriately named uh, act in the United States ever because when I when I was passed my premiums tripled so I got rid of my health insurance because of it thanks Obama but uh, they don't have that they, they don't use modern medicine uh, aside from there's there have been cases where some Amish will go to nursing school to help with uh, midwifery, you know, birthing of children, things like that. But they don't they don't use pharmaceuticals. They they may in rare cases might do that. And not all of them are monolithic by the way. Like there's many communities within the Amish that have certain uh outlooks on using types of technology. And we'll get into the philosophy behind that hopefully uh as to how they select what is good, what is kosher and to use the sort of Jewish uh, way of looking at it uh, and what is what is not kosher, but the the Amish have a general uh, parallel system that has somehow uh, avoided many of the temptations that have corrupted, in our view, I would argue, I would speak for all of us, I think, in this, uh, corrupted most of the society today to the point where people aren't having children, they're unhappy, they're antagonistic to one another, the family relationships are, are poor, uh, and they're small or they're they're fragmented, they're broken, they're not married, they're divorced multiple times, even sometimes they don't have issues the Amish don't have issues with drugs uh they have um and I, there's a section I wanted to actually include in this tonight's topic on their businesses, which is fascinating to me. There was a book I read on this uh but their their success rates uh, in business are astounding they have um they have something like a five percent failure rate after like 
five years of being in business, which compared to most small businesses and, and startups in the United States is, is really, really good. I mean, most startups, like 80, 90% of them go out of business within that time frame. And so that gets into what the types of businesses they're doing, but their society is structured in a way where they actually, they set up their, the next generation very well, it would seem. And so just with all the, all those really very positive numbers, I think they're a community that just cannot be ignored. And I think there's a lot we can learn from them. If we're not going to become Amish, at least learn some of the, the strategies and cultural technologies that you can, if you want to use that word, that they've employed to actually create a very healthy community. So that, that's really the origin of my interest in them. Uh, and before I get into the, some of the background history, I have some notes on that. Uh, did you guys have anything you wanted to add on the Amish? I mean, the more interesting question from my perspective is not uh, kind of uh, the actual internal working of the Amish. There's a uh, equally, if not more so, uh, interesting political question about why they are allowed to uh, be by themselves. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Quote, unquote. Um, which is not really by themselves so we've we've eliminated the uh, the bands section and decided to uh, to confine it uh to the uh the after dark episodes but i will say there's nothing that uh goes better with boomer consumerism than amish craftsmanship uh the notion that they are uh kind of you know in some sense isolated from society is eh, yes and no um there's like there is a Amish economy. They do well in business for themselves by interacting with the larger uh, economy. And one of the things that distinguishes them is that, uh, you know, they, they're they not big on things like uh, minimum wage or uh, payroll taxes or really taxes of any kind or uh, the regulations that most other uh, equivalent businesses would be obliged at the point of a bayonet to follow. Uh, so I think we'll uh, probably uh, defer that a little bit. We'll probably give a little bit more background, but just ponder in the back of your minds what what allows them to have that status. Yeah, that's a great question. Hans, did you have any quick thoughts before I go into the history? So it's my understanding that the states with the largest Amish populations uh, would be Ohio, Indiana, then Pennsylvania, correct? Pennsylvania, I believe, is number one, followed by Ohio or Indiana. I can double-check that. But, yeah, Pennsylvania was the original. And so Lancaster County is the largest settlement. Now, they have they have moved out of that area into a lot of areas um, throughout the, the broader Midwest, I would say. Uh, but, yeah, Ohio, Indiana, and Pennsylvania are the top three, no question. And when you say they've, you know, the settling other areas, um, maybe we can quickly talk about how the Amish kind of have started to settle these other areas. But what is their settling process, and how does that really work with yeah. local municipalities and state governments? Well, to that degree of detail, I don't know how they they go out. I mean, I'm, basically, they buy land, and that's I think where just like any American, you can move somewhere and set up shop and they probably, okay. I'm, I'm speculating here, but they probably look for areas that are, have low populations that would be able to support a relatively uh, new group of people coming in and, and they don't move in huge numbers. First of all, they 
generally will take their their congregation which is roughly ordered around the Dunbar number of 150 to 300 people, um, somewhat uh, coincidentally or somewhat uh, uh, intentionally. Uh, I'm not of uh, in a position to know that level of detail, but it actually does structure itself around that, that very famous number that observes that that is the number of uh, people that one person can realistically maintain uh, within their own personal social circle in a somewhat sensible way. Uh, so once that number grows past that, uh, once their congregation grows past that, you know, 150, 300 level, they'll, they'll split it up and they'll basically have people move to different regions. And I would imagine most of them are looking for adjacent land to be close to the people that they grew up with or knew. Uh, but there are cases where they've gone as far as, um, Bolivia, if you can believe that, but that is an extreme example. Most of them are in the United States by far. And they have, uh, like I said, 342,000 in the U.S. And there's there's only about 5,000 in Canada, which is the second largest. So most of them are in the U.S. Uh, they've gone, as we've talked about, to Ohio and Indiana outside of the original settlement in Pennsylvania. Uh, but uh, I'll, I'll give a personal anecdote. I was actually uh, driving, driving through Wisconsin one night, and there was um, – it was super dark. I, I was basically just trying to find a place to – uh, to park and, and go to go to sleep, but it was uh, it was some back roads, and I was on Google Maps. I don't know where it was taking me, and so it was kind of a country road. And all of a sudden, I see this like light, like just wandering through the trees. I'm like, "What the hell is that?" And then I see this horse in a carriage, and I, it, it was like out of a horror movie. I thought it was some kind of like ghost. It was really spooky, and then I realized it was, uh, you know, somebody's like just horse, and they're they're moving, and I. I basically extrapolated that it was the Amish. I didn't know they were out that far though, but they're actually in Wisconsin and the upper Midwest. Um, so yeah, they've, they've basically had to find land that is agricultural, I would say. And most of that is the Midwest. And, uh, I guess they, they started in Pennsylvania, which is somewhat in the East, but that kind of original Midwestern area was Ohio, which is like right next to that. Uh, and they have not seemed to go anywhere outside of that region. They have not to my knowledge, gone to the south, which does have a lot of agricultural land. They have not gone into the west uh, at, in any great extent. But, um, yeah, those are, the, those are the areas that I'm familiar with. So that was <clears throat> always an interesting thing that I wasn't really clear on was how do they actually go about moving to new land and settling it. So maybe we can kind of postulate that the Amish economy at this point is basically structured around, uh, uh, you know, acquiring uh, U.S. dollars to purchase land rights by selling um, various exports to the wider American economy. You could think of it that way. It, I don't think that's the. It's it's not like after World War II where Japan and Germany were like export or die. We have to export to get U.S. dollars, you know, the new empire's currency, you know, so we can survive kind of thing. I think they do that in the Amish community to obviously just enable them to purchase real estate. But beyond that, my my impression is they're not driven by money. It's really they just want to have a surplus so they can continue to have the size families that they've traditionally had. And that and a lot of that is through barter. I mean, they, they basically grow food and they have a surplus of food and they trade with people who are specializing in crafts and, and they have, uh, they have gift shops with, for all the English people as they call us. 
who are not Amish uh, to come in and buy stuff. And so they get a little hard currency that way. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, it goes into expanding the realm per se, but they're also pacifists. And so that's the other interesting thing about them is that they don't, um, they don't oh, they're pacifists. Yes. And no, I mean, so I don't know if you can really, this is maybe a philosophical digression, but I don't know that you can really vote in the American system and consider yourself a pacifist. What do you mean? I mean, I not to go full uh, full libertarian, but uh, whenever you're voting, you're <laughs> always voting for the imposition of force. Wow. Like at the that's point going of pretty, abandon. that's going pretty libertarian in my book, but. I mean, if you're going to like call yourself a pacifist and you're voting for somebody who's explicitly promising to start, you know, a war or two, uh, I mean, I guess you can be personally pacifist, but not opposed to the exercise of state violence. But, All right, but I don't know how you square that circle. Yeah, but, but Hank, I mean, if you really want to be autistic i mean like, i don't I wish i had a better word yeah i mean like... to be clear i mean so i think i think adam this is just going to be kind of a, an ongoing point of yeah. uh not necessarily disagreements um but just kind of like a, a way of interpreting the amish yeah. i think uh i think and correct me if you if uh, i'm wrong here um my impression is that you are disposed to kind of uh see them in a favorable uh, light as kind of a uh, exemplar of a uh, kind of principled uh, way of living. And my kind of uh, contention is that that that's yes and no. They, they have certain uh, kind of patterns of behavior that are that have been cultivated and emergent and to a large extent is kind of the way that we do things and ends up being driven by practicality on the margin rather than uh, some set of kind of, um, you know, autistically cultivated uh, principles. And I think you can really see this in the way that uh, they engage with technology. Like this is really the, the thing that everybody knows, like, oh, they don't use certain kinds of modern technology but I mean, you can look at a bunch of different uh different kind of uh, uh breakdowns and tables about which communities have decided that uh it's okay uh to use particular forms of technology like with that's refrigeration or uh, you know uh, electric lights uh, certain uh powered farm equipment and they do that not by kind of, you know, there's always the bit about like, oh, after much prayer and contemplation. But what actually seems to happen is that there's a uh, decision by kind of uh, people that have social capital in that community about whether it would be good for the social dynamics of the community versus their kind of uh, right. competition with the outside world. That's their objective. It's it's the, is it good for the community? That's how they right. make these rules, the ordinong, as they call so, it. Yeah, and I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm, I'm not sure, I'm certainly not 
besmirching them if I were going to kind it's of describe a family. I mean, it's just an extension of a, of a family. Ness versus most other groups, so I'd rate it higher. Yeah. But there's a temptation to say that uh, that kind of like set of principles is what's actually driving it versus the principles are kind of a codification of things that you do in order to uh, survive that are changed when is necessary. And I think pacifism is a great example of that. So like they're, they're pacifist in order to avoid being a sort like a, in order to avoid being drafted. That was the original kind of motivation and B, to avoid that could be, but I, I have to say though, that and this, okay. So we're both looking at the Wikipedia page, you know, this technology table is there. If anybody's curious, it, it has a interesting breakdown of what, tools and technologies they're comfortable with depending on their community but uh, at the end of the, the Wikipedia article it is talking about how there was a case uh, in very early uh, settlement times in colonial America where there was a family that was killed before the United States was even formed so there's no draft okay maybe, maybe the British right, draft, right. I don't know but I'm but, saying like this is this but, is the kind of back and forth like you uh you become a pacifist in order to make it very, very clear that this uh, extremely cohesive, fairly wealthy community is not a threat. They're not going to raise yeah. a militia and march on your local town. Well, they're not going to do like the Hasidic thing where they like run their own uh, police department. I'll, and, I'll uh, wager that the there is a component to their society that does view this type of stuff pragmatically and if you want to go so far as to call it cynically, but I don't think it's fair to interpret their, their way of life as simply a technique, conscious technique, at least to yeah, and trick I don't, the U S government to avoid having right. to pay taxes or be drafted or something. And like this, that. this is, this is like the interesting dynamic here. And it, it really is like, this is, this is the, so you start with kind of a group of people that's, you know, in Germany, the 30 years of war, like Anabaptists, mm. and it's like, okay, well, there's some nuts there, but they're basically Germans. There's not a huge amount of selection going on. Mm -hmm. And they kind of arrive at a certain set of uh, principles based on their interpretation of the Bible um, or, you know, the revelation of God or whatever. And this reifies itself in certain social patterns. And those social patterns change and they kind of re-derive new principles. They mm -hmm. codify that. They actually live by those principles. Mm -hmm. And there, so there's this kind of like back and forth where if you like, if you ask somebody, why do you call yourself a pacifist or why are you a pacifist? You almost certainly get some answer about like that's the way that we do things yeah the they wouldn't i mean the, the average amish is not going to give like, you a philosophical like, let me explain you know, defense, to you like the political yeah. economy no, of like yeah. the relationship of with course. this brutal empire we call the united states so i mean it's not cynical in that sense but it, it is a emergent phenomenon and uh okay people who don't get along with that kind of emergent set of uh like operating conditions they sort of boil off from the Amish community. They mm -hmm. stop being Amish. So you have this group that's super selected for really high cohesion, a certain amount of adaptability, like codifying that adaptability into principles that they live by. 
on a kind of an ongoing basis until you explicitly change those principles and ends up being like a fascinating uh, dynamic. I just don't want to get into like, I I don't want to take kind of the straw man version of, Oh, the Amish, they're, they're just like us. And they just decided to live in this way. No, no, they're absolutely not like us. They have 400 years of literally divergent evolution. Yeah. And that that's enough for a lot of weird stuff to happen. Sure. No, it's no, actually, it's, it's fascinating. The, yeah. So one of the things that I think really influenced the Amish in the early stages was not only certain biblical passages and certain biblical beliefs, probably, as Zink was saying, formulated during the uh, the aftermath of the Thirty Years' War, um, which you know tore Germany asunder, and, and I think that. In the middle of the Thirty Years' War, there was there were a lot of these weird cults going around, that, uh, especially in Germany and in uh, Bohemia, or what's now the Czech Republic, um, and you know associated areas full of all kinds of these various beliefs. Some of them were actually very violent and preached similar beliefs to the Amish, but they and the Anabaptists, but they were more settled with a violent approach of achieving those ends, sort of peasant uprisings. Um, but the Anabaptists and then their their later successors really chose a, a different route, I think, which was just pure uh, you know, separation, complete and total societal separation. Well, I want to add, but before we move off the Anabaptists, uh, there was, a, and I, I'd learned about this basically from this podcast, um, but uh, Dan Carlin's uh, Hardcore History did a very good episode, I believe it was episode 48, uh, but it was called Prophets of Doom on the... Very, period. very good Endorsed. episode. We've, uh, we've mentioned that episode yeah. several times. It's yeah. probably one of the best episodes he's ever done. Yeah, and it just goes into... I mean, we, we talk about us being you know believers in uh, not all the myths, at least, of the country we live in as being persecuted, but I mean, if you really want to be honest, uh, we're not being persecuted to the degree that the Anabaptists had to live through. I mean, these people, uh, to this day, there are cathedrals in Germany that have the cages whereby these people were hung above, uh, left to rot, and to, their, to the point where their skeletons were sitting in these cages after the birds had picked their bones clean for being heretics. These people were left Which, uh, you know, to, to yeah. serve as examples that so other people wouldn't follow them. So they, they, they had somewhat of a real gripe going on when they said, you know, we can't live here anymore. If you, uh, if you listen to that Dan Carlin episode, it's there. They might've had that coming a little bit. That was pretty, yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. They were, they were definitely, uh, extremists. Uh, but you know, when you feel that alienated and that that's the retaliation tactic, I'm just saying, you know, there's a big rift and it's, you want to call it irreconcilable differences, whatever you want to call it, uh, that's the origin of how they got, you know, out of Germany and, and started leaving. Yeah, and, and maybe those experiences uh, in Germany colored their worldview that led to the creation of, I think, the Amish political uh, philosophy, if you want to call it that, which is that maybe instead of getting and trying to get involved in uh, the politics of the state and the politics of religion writ large, you should simply just sort of opt out. Yeah, you don't should, don't you bug attempt to the emperor. Remove yes. yourself as much as possible, you know, economically, uh, culturally, linguistically, from those around you, um, just for your own survival. And as long as you can kind of be a good neighbor and not do anything to harm them, and maybe even be a good merchant, a good trader, a good exporter, 
you can get by without any real problems. Yeah, that that's that's the observation that I've always been fascinated by, and and I'm glad you articulated it as you did, Hans. That and, make the Amish I think that, um, interesting politically. Yeah, and and I want to say that their time as refugees, if we want to call them that, or um, expats in Switzerland, and also their links to the Dutch, probably very much uh, informed their sort of commercialist outlook. Um, this this commercialist pacifism, if you want to call it that, wherein you it was very popular in the sort seventeenth century Switzerland and 17th century Netherlands, outside of the occasional wars that the Swiss Confederacy of the Netherlands would have to get involved in, often very much sort of against their own will, um, they were much more focused on uh, good relations, good trade, and property expansion. Those were kind of the common unifying beliefs of the average Swiss-German or Schweizdeutsche or, uh, you know, someone in the Netherlands, uh, particularly the rural Netherlands or even in Holland itself. I think that that all these experiences probably really colored the outlook of the Amish over time into forming um, their sort of general worldview, especially in the context of living in um, effectively an English country uh, for much of their history. I think that their idea has always been to maybe not replay the, the events of 30 years war and not to replay the events of sort of the post Lutheran reformation um, problems within Germany and an outlook towards various sects that might be seen as uh, extremist or might be seen as not operating within the norms of society that uh, instead of taking a combative route to those problems, you would simply sort of alleviate them by being quiet, being a good neighbor being insular and providing goods and services where you can at a decent cost. Um, and then biblically speaking, there are a couple really important passages that I think the Amish draw upon. Uh, the Amish, from what I understand, definitely do, you know, they it, it's pretty much um, somewhat standard, let's say, uh, old-school German or proto-German Protestantism, but it, it definitely is still very colored by the Christian tradition. Um, it's very much the belief that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, uh, there's one God within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, they believe in everything, you know, most of what most Christians believe and certainly what most Protestants would believe. Um, interestingly, they... Uh, have definitely imbued themselves with some elements of Calvinism, which is drawn from multiple sources of inspiration within the New and both Old and New Testament of this idea of being self-reliant, working hard, being due diligent, having due diligence, um, living honorably, and sort of keeping your head down and being a good Christian while you do all of those things. Uh, but interestingly, they also really, uh, I think have a sense of church and state being separate to an extent um they don't really and again i think i think that probably partially has to do with just their general community structure it's not a theocracy um but they also don't attempt to have never attempted and will never attempt because of their general political outlook to exert religion on the state 
if there was ever a contingency where the Amish became this massive, pop, massively populated group of people in the United States who had the most to potentially gain politically, um, I'd think that they would simply not do it just for the sheer fact that it would violate many precepts of their philosophy, which is that you shouldn't really combine your cultural practices and your religious practices with the governance structure, which is something that they would probably not look fondly on. That, that's uh, hard to know. Uh, it would certainly be somewhat in the distant future, although I don't have the spreadsheet in front of me to give you the convergence date when the Amish become the majority of the United States. Um, but I, I think what's interesting about their histories is, is that they they fled a relatively uh, densely populated area of the world, which was right. Europe. And they came to a relatively unpopulated part of the world in order to live out their, their life. And to this day, America still, despite what you know, most cities are becoming, uh, still is a vastly empty tract of land mainly because the way we do agriculture today is highly industrialized. And so most of the people are not living in agricultural areas. But if you do live the way the Amish live, you can find land that is basically empty, that is not surrounded by a whole lot of other political, uh, local people at least, that are going to try to interfere with your way of life. Uh, and we'd, we'd have to see a lot more time before that sort of population convergence would happen. But I, I don't know. Uh, it's hard. It's really hard to know uh, of any you know, distant future point. But it's hard to know how the Amish might change if they did become <coughs> the majority group uh, in a country. Because at that point, the right. country is Amish. And so, well, maybe they need to start imposing ordnung on everybody else. I don't know if they would do that. Uh, but I think because they've historically been a minority, this is what their culture has become. And if they become a majority, then you have something maybe different. And that's kind of what the country as a whole is going through, where the minority is becoming the majority and things are changing. So it's hard to say, but I think that that right. does define who they are as just that sort of leave us alone because you've always you know, not really been about supporting our views. And so this is our strategy to do that. Um, it's almost as if, like, imagine post-1945 uh, if the uh, the sort of Orthodox Jewish community had adopted a a policy of strict non-interference in the uh, the wider culture to yeah. uh, to prevent uh, pre-1945 events from uh, recurring. Right. They took the opposite strategy. There's a couple. There's a couple biblical quotes that I actually want to get to that kind of encapsulate that so probably one of the most important ones would be romans 12 um and be ye not conformed to this world but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of god um there's also corinthians 6 uh, which would be be not unequally yoked with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what fellowship can light have with darkness and then there's also uh, Corinthians six seventeen four six uh, fourteen, come out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord, which is actually kind of a <laughs> there's a reference to that in the movie Witness with Harrison Ford, where the where the the old Amish guy says to the kid, careful out among them English or something like that. Um, but anyways, those 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 kinds of passages from the 
from the Bible are critical to the Amish worldview, which is this uh, this notion that uh, you know the outsiders are potentially non-believers, and they certainly don't believe what you believe, and they're not practicing the good word of God as diligently as you are. And furthermore, that I think the the Romans twelve is probably the most powerful part. And be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is crucial because that basically implies that you should not go with um, whatever trends might be emerging at any given time, and you should stay consistent and stay uh, introspective of your own mind and the minds of those immediately around you. And not necessarily the minds of others far away, even if there's new means to connect the two of you. To uh, to round out the background information on how the Amish came to be in the United States. Um, so as we've talked about, they came from Central Europe, uh, Protestants of the kind of Calvinist bent, Anabaptists specifically. Uh, there was somewhat of a divergence, I think, from the Anabaptists, uh, and they when they went to Switzerland, they. They were following this guy named, I uh, can't really pronounce it probably too well, but uh, Huldrich Zwingli. Zwingli. Uh, and that was it was right around the time of the, of the Reformation. And then th- this group, uh, he was the leader that went to Switzerland. And so when, when that group got established in 1693, the... Uh, the Swiss German Anabaptists were led by this guy named Jacob Amon. And this is where the, the word Amish comes from. It's his name. And he was again, somewhat disliked by other rival groups. And so this sort of laid the groundwork for their departure. Uh, when they got to the United States, the first settlement was in 1727. They were in Pennsylvania. And then there was Another divergence that happened in the 1800s, uh, whereby the Amish became the Old Amish and the Mennonites. And so I have a very superficial understanding of the distinctions, but my basic knowledge it will tell me that the Mennonites might drive a car because reasons and the Amish will not. And I would, to, to, after studying the Amish, I can at least explain why the Amish would not have something like an automobile, but they would actually take something like a bus or a train to go visit other people. Their philosophy towards technology is rooted in the thinking that technology is not good or bad, but we have to filter it for whether it's good for the community. And their view of the automobile is that it gives, and this is funny because growing up as an, as an American, you, you're taught that the automobile in the 50s, especially watch American Graffiti and all these kitschy movies of the boomers, uh, that the automobile was the wheels for freedom for the teenager especially and liberating them from their family. Well, the Amish view that actually as a very negative thing because they, they see that as breaking the family up and giving people the opportunity to travel really far away from where their home is, and they may never come back. And so they don't, they don't use the automobile for that reason. It's, so that, that was one of the big splits, though, it, that happened in the 1800s. Uh, the, other, the only other note I had historically on the Amish is that, and this surprised me, 
I'm um, actually there's two notes, excuse me. So the, the first one is that uh, when World War One happened and the first war against Germany basically uh, happened, the fact that the Amish they speak a they call it a Pennsylvania Dutch, uh, but that's actually an incorrect uh, way of uh, calling their language. It's not Dutch; it's German. But people didn't understand what Deutsch meant, so they they basically thought they were talking about Holland or something. So they said Dutch. Uh, but it's actually German. It's it's a Schweizerdeutsch. It's Swiss German uh, derived, at least. And the fact that the United States was fighting the Kaiser in World War One, and then obviously Hitler in World War Two, uh, but it was mainly th- this this sort of trend happened in World War One. Uh, the German language was viewed very negatively in the American culture and American society, and so the the otherness that was sort of always there got amplified. And the fact that they were one of the few groups that spoke exclusively uh, German, although they they do speak English and they do actually study in uh, English and German, it's very fascinating how they do that because they they, they want to be able to actually interact and you know sell things and uh, run businesses and buy buy land. So they they actually do speak both, but they're they're one of the groups that that really does have German uh, during their. Their church sermons, uh, half the the sermons, or not the sermons, but the the songs, I think, really are in uh, German, and half are in English, and they, they really try to have have a bilingual basis to the culture. But that actually further separated the Amish from the Americans and created this kind of ethnic and linguistic enclave. Uh, this the second thing that I had historically was that, according to Wikipedia, and this surprised me, uh, up until 1950. Uh, all Amish children attended local non-Amish schools, which I, I thought was a, a shocking thing because, to my understanding, they they really don't participate much in general society. But if either of you know more about that uh, that fact, it, that was that was very interesting to me. But after, I mean, um, it sort of makes sense. That's uh, considering the time and place. You know, they only go up to eighth grade, correct? Um, and I believe that was uh, that's been a consistent pattern for they had to uh, a fight long that time in the supreme court though in order to be exempt right. from education but after it, that. if you're talking about a, a rural pre-1950 community i mean it's it's basically the proverbial one-room schoolhouse and if you've got a bunch of amish granted that the rural population density was higher at the time but i would doubt that it would be uh, anything uh as crazy as is currently being taught and you're going to have, it's not just one or two Amish kids that's going to be isolated. It's probably going to be like half, maybe more of the class. Uh, So I could see that being kind of non problematic in uh, that particular environment. Now, of course it would be completely untenable. Yeah. So today basically the Amish have their own schools. They, they, they didn't like what was happening after World War II, basically, with the forced integration and urban growth and sprawl. And so they, they figured out how to get out of that. And so they, they have their own system. And a lot of it is, well, like I don't think I, people could handle their education system. It's much more stern and old school, and they, they do a lot of it in German. And so I don't think the general public would be able to go into their schoolhouses, even if they wanted to. Um, go ahead, Hans. Well, I, I, I think that part of it has to do with the fact that I – Starting in the late 40s and definitely through the 50s, um, that 
that sense of local parent control, especially in rural parts of the country, had, uh, I think, be started to go to the wayside. There was a lot of consolidation. That was when, this is before the Department of Education, which um, came seven years after the end of that uh, Supreme Court case you're talking about. Um, but there was a lot of state-level consolidation. There was certainly a lot of attempts to um, combine multiple forms of, of training and education to, and traditional education together in the 50s. Um, during the you know the height of the cold you know the beginning of the cold war there's a real emphasis placed on well we need to create the next generation of skilled and educated americans and so that means we need to be able to have input into the curriculum we need to be yeah. able to and that goes back input. to rockefeller too i mean yeah. it was well, yeah. it was leading up to what to you're talking about input into the kinds of materials that they're given that they're using the information that they're given we can't really allow for improvisation or sort of uh, the entire onus to be on these local professors. There was also an attempt in the 40s and 50s to really start bringing the rural folk into the university system, into state schools, into private schools. And the only way that you could ensure that they could adequately come in and actually perform well off the bat would be is, you know, if they had a strong education or an education that fit with the university style of teaching and the information that they were giving out. So, in order to you know, smooth this pipeline, if you want to call it that, there was definitely a large scale, but you know, uh, sort of under the under the table effort within the 40s and 50s, all the way through the 70s, the creation of the Department of Education to basically consolidate and uh, strategize the overall creation of curriculum and training of teachers. And I think that was probably really the, the crux of the problem for the Amish was that uh, the United States was uh, rapidly expanding globally and it was rapidly expanding into a variety of industries and uh, global enterprises and uh, you know sort of missions around the world and missions in space and various uh, domestic missions. And in order to accomplish those things, they needed people. And they needed people from the rural heartland to fulfill various roles in this new empire. Um, and so if I had to speculate, that'd probably be part of the reason why the Amish bailed out of the school system. Um, I think that today, if you were to gauge what rural education is like in much of in much of the country, there's numerous stories, uh, especially the last couple of years, about the complete and total collapse of rural education in America. Um, there was a story on from Vice, I believe, a couple months ago. Yeah, what happens months. is they have to consolidate a lot of the school districts because the populations. Right. Are, it depends on where you are, obviously, but uh, the, the, a lot of uh, communities are experiencing uh, declines in young people, especially leaving. Right. And family formation is difficult, so it turns into this sort of like retirement community, and then there's maybe some kids, but the the middle group, which is supposed to be having kids, isn't there, and so the few people who are are a dwindling number, and so they end up having to bus a lot of people into these groups. And um, anyway, please carry on. Well, that's just I mean I'm sort of finished making my point, but I think I saw something from Vice, maybe some outlet like that about. Uh, Montana and 
either Montana or Wyoming. And, uh, you know, several of these school districts are completely falling apart due to lack of funding, lack of teachers. And um, then you, you kind of look at what the quality of the education is like. And it's almost entirely determined by the state and by the federal government through the Department of Education. Um, and there's no real flexibility in that curriculum that would probably make sense for rural Montana or rural Wyoming. Instead, it's sort of the same standardized curriculum wherever you go. And the whole point of it is to direct you towards university far away from your town that you grew up in. And that's sort of antithetical to the Amish. The Amish do not want their children being part of this pipeline that'll send them, that'll, you know, sort of inculcate this sense in them that I have to get out, I need to get away from here, I need to go learn more about what I've just learned about. And the only way to accomplish that is to go to college or go to university. And that'll, you know, exponentially yeah. increase the chances that they do not come back. Well, that's exactly that what's happening. That, that's that's what's happened right. to America. It's basically the orthodoxy is that you need to go to university. And that's why there's a surfeit of college degree educated people and they're working at Starbucks. I mean, it's, uh, but anyway, that, that, that's sort of just uh, somewhat of a side note. But the overall point is that you have to participate in the system in order to survive and thrive. And if you don't, if you don't, you know, leave your family behind who actually cares about you versus the system, which doesn't even know who you are, um, then you're making a mistake. But the Amish see that as very dangerous, and so they've been able to keep people away. And w one thing about the education is we're talking about people going off to university. Uh, what's interesting is that, um, and a lot of people might speculate that the Amish, you know, maybe aren't very smart because they don't use technology or they're uh, they don't have the hyper competitive. Uh, uh, sexual selection maybe that you know we would have in our marketplace and so therefore the the most intelligent aren't necessarily selected for but it turns out and this was somewhat surprising to me I wasn't sure what to expect but the, it turns out that the uh, the results on tests uh, for the Amish up until they finish school are actually just as comparable to the uh, the English as they would say the outsiders the non-Amish uh, and so their education system and obviously their their stock of people is is no worse for the wear, it would seem, for their lifestyle, just like their healthcare system, uh, for not using all of this modern stuff. They seem to be doing just fine. Yeah, I mean, if you look at kind of uh, the selection pressures involved, uh, if you're a crappy farmer, which is to say you plant at the wrong time, you uh, you get tired and you, uh, you don't take the crop in uh, when it's necessary, uh, you're not so good with money, and so you can't afford via the capital, you know, just to say livestock or machinery, even if it's animal or human powered. Farming is still a capital intensive business. Uh, you uh, you don't do well for yourself, and somebody ends up uh, taking over for you. You probably don't have a uh, a great wife, if a wife at all. You probably don't have a lot of kids. And in a very communitarian structure like the Amish, uh, if you're if you're a uh, if you're a dumb guy, if you're a guy who lacks diligence, uh, I could see that uh, your genes might very well not propagate. And if anything, I would expect that those pressures would be much higher than in the surrounding community where that population is 
aggressively subsidized uh, proportionally with how many kids they have. Well, I think that's that's a fair point. I mean, compared to how things are with a welfare state, I, I, I certainly agree that the non-Amish are probably looking at more dysgenic uh, population pressures than the Amish are. But prior to that, uh, you know, the sort of Ayn Rand era America where uh, Hank Reardon is running roughshod over the uh, over the uh, the lower peoples of society. I don't know if that America would would have uh, more uh, more eugenic effect. Yeah, that the, the that divergence I, I think is a post. Uh, and there, there's different people that kind of give give different uh, time frames on that. But I guess the uh, the probably by the time you have uh, LBJ Great Society. Like you can posit that probably prior to that uh, time period, you had most of the same pressures going on, which is why you would see, you know, fairly similar. Again, you have 400 years of divergent evolution, but it's responding to the same rough general pressures, plus like a lot of conformism in the Amish case. Uh, but if you're talking about things like uh, IQ, time preference, you would expect those to be just about the same. I don't want to go full like evolutionary psychologist person um i think a lot of that analysis is uh kind of a just so stories but when you have a population that's that isolated genetically speaking it it really it uh it's an interesting mirror and i'd be really curious to see not just uh you know iq differences or whatever but uh, I'd be really curious to see. I couldn't find any. I kind of looked for some. But uh, uh, the uh, big five personality traits um, or yeah. any of the other, uh, you know, any anything else that gives kind of uh, yeah. actual psychological data on the Amish other than, boy, they sure do seem to like being around other Amish a lot. Well, I, I bet you could probably at least project those onto many of their outward cultural characteristics such as conscientiousness and agreeableness. Now, I, I don't know, uh, I don't remember the other three, but uh, from conscientiousness standpoint, I mean, they're they're super uh, rule-oriented and they obviously, if you're a farmer, uh, and it depends on where they live in the country, but I mean, if you're obviously in Wisconsin and even Pennsylvania and Ohio, basically the whole region, okay, that, that they live in, uh, it's subject to winter. And if you're a, a farmer, you really, and you're not living with refrigeration, you're not living with Monsanto technology seeded, you know, genetically modified whatever's to kill disease. You really have to be on it. You really do. Uh, you have to be planning, you have to be thinking about the future constantly. And so, you know, these these people are, are not going to be dummies, uh, and their, their personality is also going to be very diligent. Uh, I know a lot of very smart but lazy people, but the, these are not lazy people. They work very hard, and you have to if you're an agricultural-based society. And so in terms of their personality— Not even just like winter, but you get floods and tornadoes and shit. Sure. And sure. you have to—it's you, you, not just, you know, can you grind it, but it's also, okay, so half your zip code just got wrecked. What What's your plan now? <laughs> Mm -hmm. like you're you're not at that point even talking about you know you personally might have a tough time but that's been a thing that's caused entire communities to become unsustainable especially when you don't happen to believe in uh uh 
uh, various insurance schemes. Yeah. Yeah, I actually don't know to what extent they have. Um, I guess they don't have banks. I actually, I don't they know where they put their money. Do. They do? Um, okay. The, uh, they yeah, they participate in the banking economy, and uh, they actually invest in uh, several kind of local uh, mm-hmm. banks. Uh, the Bank of Bird in Hand uh, <laughs> was the uh, the one that got uh, got a bunch of news stories about it. Um, but they they absolutely do fo- uh, participate in the uh, the sort of credit economy, or at least like there are there are enough instances uh, that I don't think that that's uh, an uncommon thing. There might right. be you know just like everything else, community level differences well, in there. Yeah. And, and it would make some sense given how their society is structured. I mean, credit is arguably sort of an old way of finance as opposed to startup capital or some kind of seed investor, an angel investor, or God forbid, an incubator. They're never going to have that obviously, but no Y combinators in Lancaster County uh, for good or for worse. But the, the credit way of doing things makes a lot of sense um, especially when you're dealing with people who are as uh, diligent and not uh, not prone to effing up like the Amish are, given the statistics I quoted earlier about their success rates, like 95% of their businesses succeed in the first five years. I mean, that's astonishing. Yeah. Uh, but and you're, yeah. you're like obliged to use credit if you're operating, I mean, at least as a, I guess if you had a community level, you could have kind of quasi internal capital, but given how capital intensive the business mm-hmm. is even if you're like this this was a thing in the like mid 1800s in the US that farmers developing the frontier had so much credit associated with them because they're opening up the space they have to have livestock equipment seeds the land itself that they were, you know, in favor of various banking uh, policies that would reduce their real uh, debt burden. This is the whole like, I uh, uh, shall not crucify the economy on a cross of gold or whatever. They wanted free silver. They wanted cheap money, and you know, you you need you can't just build up that level of cash flow if you are a actual farm. We focus on the farming. I think the. Uh, the kind of artsy craftsy stuff is a more modern uh, component of that sub economy, but it's have, it's not purely uh, art though. I mean, they do uh, like industrial materials. They'll do wood, yeah, lumber, the, things I mean, like that. You know, the, they have all my, my Amish bread or whatever, my Amish bakery. That that mm-hmm. kind of the tourist economy um, type stuff or the yeah. branding, I think, is is relatively recent. It is, and but I you, can't imagine if, if you're getting like two or three crops thing. a year, yeah. even those are infusions of cash that you don't just leave that cash sitting around because you need equipment for the next crop, like this, like. Like Babylon level, farming has always had some sort of implicit notion of look out there, there's a field of grain. I need money to get oxen to harvest that so we can all get paid. Like there's always been some sort of thing if it's structured as debts or some notion of uh, futures uh, contract or just delivery contracts on the grain that you're about to bring in there's always been 
something like that. And as I understand that the Amish are not uh, sketchy about participating in that, given especially that their ancestors in 1600s Germany probably did the same thing. So there's an interesting article written for NPR uh, on December 12th, 2008. So this is like, you know, the the low end of the financial implosion in the mortgage markets uh, written by one Adam Davidson. Um, insert your own echoes there. Uh, he basically, the crux of the article is that uh, the, the Amish have sort of a, an elaborate, semi-elaborate banking structure and uh, banking practices with local banks. So there's a, a very important bank in Lancaster County called Hometown Heritage Bank. It's run by a guy named Bill O'Brien. Um, and, you know, he basically attests that something like 95% of the customers at this bank are Amish. Now, what's interesting is that he... He's the the head of the agricultural lending, I should say, not the not the head of the bank, but he he's basically responsible for something like a hundred million dollars worth of loans. So think about that. There's just in Lancaster County, and just for the Amish there, uh, basically just for the Amish there, there's a hundred million dollars in capital. Uh, now I think people have this contention that oh the Amish, you know they're they kind of just make do. They don't really deal with large quantities of everything Ooh, or anything. But they are have, loaded. They are absolutely loaded, and they have a lot of hard currency. So again, this gets back to what I was saying earlier about their participation in the economy, and I think that uh, the Amish expansion is going to continue uh, because their demographics are great. Um, they have no, you know, sort of internal social problems that are you know, in sort of a crisis mode. And they have a massive amount of capital. And on top of that, they are seen by local banks as a surefire bet. You can lend out as much money as possible to the Amish. And more than likely, you will never have a single missed payment. You will never have a single problem dealing with them. So this gives them enormous potential financial capital they can draw upon. Um, because they're again, their their personal philosophy. Their credit rating is AAA. Well, that's actually also interesting in the, the sense that even it makes a sense uh, or point that in most banks, Great, greater than General wants, Electric, by the way. <laughs> a man who wants to buy Which a farm that has no credit it. history, no FICO score, and not even a driver's license would be an unlikely bet. But O'Brien is used to this. O'Brien says the Amish are less risky debtors than people with access to all the tools of modern banking. The Amish live without well within their means, no splurging on iPods or HDTVs, etc. The Amish think that dismissing a payment brings shame, not just on them, but on their whole family and their whole community. We have never lost any money on an Amish deal, he says. So I'll stretch my neck some for with them, then maybe I will with someone else. Um, so there's also this other uh, interesting part of this article in that it goes into... Uh, just the general housing and farming markets at the time, 2008, and all the indicators, especially for farming, that were prevalent then are much worse now for small farms. Um, but it says uh, O'Brien knows which farms are doing well and which are struggling. He has to. When you lend to the Amish, you're making a loan that you're going to keep. You can't sell that loan to some other investor. That's because the Amish loans can't be securitized. 
It can't be turned into a mortgage-backed security or a collateralized debt obligation, like all those subprime loans that have caused so much trouble. You can't do that for an odd legal reason. Homes that don't have electric power don't qualify for securitization. Neither do homes without traditional insurance. Amish homes are unmodernized, and the Amish use their own kind of insurance. The old-fashioned system works. In this year of financial crisis, of storytell banks collapsing in hours, hometown heritage has had its best year ever. So it's interesting that they have found various means of creating parallel institutions or parallel financial institutions while also utilizing existing financial institutions where they can. Um, there, you know, I've seen other articles where they talk about how the Amish are not adverse to using credit cards, to using checking accounts. Um, they handle almost all their business dealings both within their own group um, with, uh, you know, uh, Anyone who helps with the exporting of their of their goods and services, uh, and obviously with banking, they handle it all in person. There's very little, if ever, any um, sort of written correspondence or telephone correspondence with anyone like that. Um, they they prefer to handle everything in person and to get as much done in a single meeting as possible. Which, which is pretty. If you're pretty looking to. Uh, the claim is that the Amish are very diligent uh, about paying their taxes, except for the ones that they've gotten a specific, you know, kind of a legal exemption from, um, as well as exemption from the uh, the benefits, uh, which I'm sure will be multitudinous for our generation uh, of uh, things like social security. In reality, uh, given the existence of things like barter, things like you know, kind of uh, financial arrangements that under other circumstances uh, would be very highly taxed. Uh, things like debt forgiveness. Um, I, my guess is that the effective Amish tax rate is, you know, kind of to, uh, to call back to uh, a half hour ago, Ayn Rand tier. Uh, if you look at their effective uh tax rate uh and part of that too is if you structure things so that you're almost continuously expanding uh then you you know ipso facto have no um uh paper profits you're just plowing that back into capital farms in particular get really really generous tax treatment you can deduct upfront a lot of stuff that otherwise you would have to uh, depreciate over many, many years. So they they have uh, kind of a, a very efficient capital structure, if you want to look at it that coldly, because they have access to these internal sources of funds, because their reputation allows them to access capital at very favorable rates externally, uh, because they're not um, paying these uh, internal taxes that would massively uh, uh, impact any of their uh, competitors, there are reasons why they can do well for themselves. Other than, I mean, just in addition to what like, they actually seem like very industrious people. And I think it's sort of a similar uh, thing as, frankly, I mean, the the obvious comparison is the orthodox jewish community which has certain uh, levels of internal cohesion 
and uh, the same sort of access to uh, internal sources of capital, political influence, etc. And in both cases, it's like, well, we do make a decent amount from you know even the taxes that we do. Things like you know, property taxes are very difficult to uh, evade on farmland. Like a, an acre of prime farmland, you know what that's worth. Uh, so you know, kind of delving in the additional level and trying to make sure that you're squeezing every last bit of tax revenue out of them, especially given the fact that they do constitute a large and very cohesive voting block, it ends up being more trouble than it's worth. And so in both cases, they get away with things that perhaps a uh, individual uh, small-scale competitor to whatever their uh, industry of choice is, could not get away with. Yeah, the, the only thing I'll add to that is the nature of their business is, again, uh, in my opinion, very much in alignment with how a credit economy would function. So in addition to the requiring the capital, from the sort of bank's perspective, lending to an Amish person who is generally a fairly relatively good character, uh, the, their type of business is also something that you can actually quickly seize or take collateral of because it is pretty much capital as we're talking about it's not so much or not as heavily dependent on human capital that you cannot repossess or take if in case there in case of a default so in other words today's economy is like, okay let, let's create a dating app on uh, the iphone and make it go viral and we need three dollars to acquire each user so give us two million dollars and we're going to get you know slightly under a million or something how do you if that thing fails you've got nothing to repossess i mean you just got some crappy code and a failed marketing scheme there's nothing to repossess but if if you lend to a farm you've got land you've got equipment so the bank it's much lower risk for the bank to do it so there's probably not going to be a bunch of blow up hedge funds you know in amish society it's it's much more straightforward way of financing your your business and it's not really speculative because everybody needs to eat the type of stuff they do is you know okay everybody needs to build a house so they've got a sawmill they're going to finance all right eventually somebody's going to need to buy the wood so again it's not hyper speculative either so and and i'm somewhat of a critic of the banking system today but in that context of the amish society where they're basically just doing straightforward mom and pop type businesses that actually have a decent chance of succeeding. I I'd have no problem with that because it, it enables the efficient pooling of resources and deployment of capital and gives incentives to people to invest it properly. And that that's fine. That That's a functional, healthy use of finance. And I've, I'm, I have no problem with that. So again, I, I think the Amish are somewhat of an exemplar of positive things that I think if you don't want to you know, go to church every Sunday and speak German while you're doing it, at least you can learn some of these things. That's the whole point of today's show, I hope, that people can learn from. Let's see, we've kind of talked about the business stuff enough. Let's see, the the lifestyle I'd like to maybe give a little flavor to if you guys are interested. And most people know aesthetically that the Amish um, you know, don't dress, you know, in Calvin Klein. They're, they're going to be in handmade clothes typically, uh, very, they call it living plain. It's, it's this sort of simple style. 
of appearance. And I don't believe the women wear makeup. They do have a hair arrangement that does signify, I think they wear a bonnet if they're, if they're married. I think that's how it works. Uh, but basically it's, it's very simple and they, they're, they're not allowed to show a lot of vanity and that that's somewhat of a biblical teaching. It's also a social cultural technology again, to use that somewhat oblique term here, but it's basically designed to create families that are not going to be cheating on each other's spouses and also encourages the children to follow a path that leads them to that as opposed to turning out tricks at 15 on the nearest street corner to give the extreme example. But what's funny about uh, Lancaster County is that the city of Lancaster probably could not be more different than the county itself. There's, there's like a very urban element to that part of Pennsylvania. I went there once because I was very curious about seeing the Amish and I went through this like kind of thug neighborhood. I was like, what the hell? So that's the, the whole idea. Don't, don't, don't fall into that vanity pride. That's one of the seven deadly sins, I believe. Hans, you can help me on that one. But uh, so that that's one of their uh, ways of living. Living plain. Uh, they we, I talked about the ordnung earlier. We've been talking about some of the rules they have. Uh, the other really interesting thing about the Amish is they're not baptized at birth, and so they use baptism as sort of the entry point into adulthood. And if you are not serious about being Amish, you are not baptized and you are not welcome in the community, more or less, and you're not allowed to marry in the church at the very least. And so what they do around the time of adolescence is they have this thing called uh, Rumspringer, which is like running around in in, uh, German. And that's when the children are allowed to travel and live how they want to live if they want to live that way. But what's interesting is, and I I think I'm going to, put this in the introduction. So sorry for repeating myself, but uh, to say this to my co-hosts at least, uh, the the statistics for the number of children after they do uh, Rumspringa in the Amish society, uh, for the number of um, children deciding to return to Amish society in the 60s and 70s was uh, 75%. Uh, So they they, they do their thing, they go see the English way of life, and then 25% of them, of the Amish kids that did that, decide that I'd rather live in uh, New York or wherever they go as opposed to living back on the farm. So that was 25%. Today, it's only 5%. So again, it's like a sort of a damning uh, statistic that, that shows that you know, the Amish haven't really changed that much. You know, they're, not, they're not building rocket platforms and things like that. They're still farming like they've always been doing. But we've changed. And according to the Amish... Um, we don't really pass the smell test anymore. So the room, room spring is a very interesting uh, aspect of their society. And, and this is what I think Hank is uh, referring to when he says, you know, they kind of boil off the ones that are not going to want to be Amish. And that's another interesting way of approaching your society. It's like, look, we have rules, but we're not going to put you in prison if you don't follow them. Just leave. And it, it seems to work. It's an interesting way of going about it, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly heard uh, anecdotes of uh, rich Amish kids acting like dicks, uh, which is, you know, circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess that's kind of the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, uh, it was unclear to me. Uh, I, have, I have relatives that live uh, kind of near a uh, 
community with a uh, Amish uh, settlement. I mean, again, like I don't, I don't want to unfairly denigrate them, especially for like, participating in stuff that literally every yeah, human every society person. for recorded history, you have adolescents acting yeah, like dicks. Every teenager, you know, it's like a, is a dick. Yeah. I mean. I just don't want to like give the rosy impression that ah we are the simple people we're filled with God's goodness and etc. It's like no, you got like that's that's the point. Like this is a social accommodation for the fact that your adolescents are going to be dicks, so you send them out a so that they can go and be dicks somewhere else, <laughs> and b so that they can uh, you know, kind of get it out of their system a little bit until they age out of it a little bit and realize. Hey, I might uh, actually want a uh, something like a decent wife and a decent life, yep. and uh, also so that they can see, you know, it's uh, after your uh, your I don't know uh, your Amish tequila hangover or whatever the uh, the uh, English society maybe doesn't uh, appeal quite as much as uh, yeah. out the window of your buggy. What's clever about it, I think, also is that. It, it's clearly associating that, and I don't know if they actually explicitly say, like, this time of your life is when you start feeling these urges and desires for these very, uh, in their view, sinful things. But they very clearly associate it with the other, because that's when you go out and you, you while you're experiencing these hormonal changes and these sort of mood changes, you're in these other people's communities. And so psychologically, mentally, you're associating that tumultuous time in your life with the non-Amish. And so you're like, well, this sucks. I'm going to go back home. It's very clever. Um, you know, it, it's not like some algorithm or something, but it, it's, it's, they figured out a way to get their kids back home, uh, which is amazing. I know, I know so many people who they've lost their kids to drugs or alcohol and it's tragedy. And our society doesn't have really, a way of fixing it other than spending tens of thousands of dollars to send your kid to rehab. And if you don't have that money, I don't know what watch Dr. Phil. I mean, it's, it's a, what do we got? I mean, so anyway, don't, I, I don't want to be negative, but it's, uh, it's just fascinating to me how they've figured this out. And it's, um, it's, it's like a pre-industrial society. So what does that say about us? I mean, we're so clever. I don't know. Maybe not. So let's talk about so after Rome spring up, Amish return, if they if they return, and then if they're interested, I mean, I guess they have to be if they're still back. They, they're baptized, and that's when they begin the courtship process. So dating is allowed actually only after eighteen years old. So I'm sure that some of them are hanging out, but that's heavily frowned upon, and so it's actually. It's funneled through the church, whereby after church service on Sunday, the children are allowed to invite, I mean, the men are allowed to basically ask out the girls on a date. And it's, you know, gosh, I mean, I don't want to be cruel, but it's it's very quaint, at least, to talk about the type of date an Amish person would go on. It's like, would you like to walk with me home? I mean, or would you like to go down to the river and, and look at the birds? It's very simple. It's very simple. But you got to remember, they're not allowed to really interact until that time. And so if you don't overwhelm the human psych- psych- psychology and mind with stimulus, just a little bit is going to be a lot. 
And so I think that's, that's another lesson. It's like this actually leads to courtship that leads to marriage. And the, they're allowed to choose whom they, they want to marry, by the way. And, and women can say no, and it's not arranged. And so there is that um, sexual selection still going on. But it is supervised, and it's like, look, you have to do it in a, in a proper way. And if you don't do it correctly, you know, you're going to be punished, which is typically done through uh, ostracism or shunning. That's what they call it. So if you don't follow the ordnung, the rules, uh, you, nobody talks to you, basically. And it's, it's not really a, a physically violent way of punishing somebody, but it is definitely a, a severe punishment because, especially in a society that is community-based, that is a is a pretty harsh uh, thing to do to somebody, and it's maybe like imprisoning someone uh, in our society. And I think there are ways to get back from that. You basically have to repent, and you have to apologize to the community and and say, you know, I'm 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 wanting to come back, but it has to be agreed that you're being sincere. You can't just do it, just like a parole hearing. You can't just come out there like. Charles Manson used to try and it's like, Oh, I'm fine, you know, and then go into these soliloquies and why he was not guilty, uh, way back in the day that they don't want to hear that. They want to hear you confess. They want to hear you say you're guilty, uh, and that you're sincere about the Amish way of life. So that's how you get unshunned. Uh, I don't know what they call it in, in German, but that's basically what, uh, what life is like. And then after that, you know, you're, you're married, Hopefully you have your six or seven kids and then you raise your kids to do it again. It's, it's interesting to, to, to look at the, sh- the shunning in the context of like modern, I guess, modern uh, life shunning and that is exists within English America as they would think of it. So the sense that uh, <clears throat> if you say something wrong, like you, call a, a black person uh, a very perverse word or you espouse beliefs for traditional marriage like um, the guy who founded Firefox did uh, you will be effectively shunned from your from various kinds of communities like he was basically shunned from the wider tech community he was shunned from the sort of California elite he was shunned from many in his social circle for you know his support of traditional marriage, um, and he basically lost his job at one point in this whole mess, and he had to you know reduce his public profile. It's interesting that uh, you know the Amish see it as a constructive way of trying to get you to admit to you know real grievous sins or real violations against. The community that I think we could agree is a good social tool in that sense, but in you know the the, the sort of uh, modern American shunning is more about uh, you know destroying someone financially and personally and attempting to ruin their life and ruin everyone who is associated yeah. with them. There's no structure or boundaries on the American right. way. I mean, that, that's the American way in general. It's like there's really obviously we're becoming more structured and bureaucratic and controlled by the day but the amish are not deceptive about it it's basically like look this is written down we talk about it every sunday and this is the consequence if you do this and they're serious about upholding those those consequences and that's that's where you generate respect by the way it's like look 
you're fair and tough, but at the same time, you're not capricious uh, and and selfish. You're doing it for the the group and the community. And the way it happens today in America, it's it's very passive aggressive. It's it's like it's it's like you're, you're shocked all of a sudden that you've lost your well, job. Well, you can tell or, people or to get off on it in in modern America. Right. Like they they there's they there's a real sense of gleeful vindictiveness that you can pick up on when these people go after someone. Right. Um, whereas it seems to be more of a tragic turn of events if you have to do this within the Amish community. And, of course, the, the, the notion of recompense is built into the, the entire action to begin with, whereas in America, you know, the, the notion of recompense is sort of conditional... Uh, if you follow all of these insane preclusions, like you have to have some kind of mandatory meeting with resident shakedown artist Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson or, you know, some horrible beaner from La Raza or, you know, whoever has to show up and basically give you the credentials that you've, uh, you've uh, atoned for your racism and you've guaranteed X, Y, Z and, you're also donating to, you know, uh, women's groups or charities, and you're doing this, and you're doing that. You're doing anti-racism outreach. Uh, you know, you you basically have to bend over backwards and deploy financial resources to save yourself from a lifetime of suffering. Uh, and and the people doing it to you definitely get off on it. They have a real sense of um, self-satisfaction, of justice. Uh, like a personal brand of justice being dealt out, it, it it's it's a it's almost like a bizarro world of the Amish community or vice versa. That there seems to be a lot of these similar elements at play, uh, these similar social tools at play, probably because at their core they all kind of take from similar roots within Western Europe and Protestant Europe, but. Uh, how they're utilized and the way in which they're utilized and the purposes for which they're utilized are so vastly different. I really... How it compares out. I, I hesitate a little bit, partly because of, of Hank's sort of uh, real talk about you know not glorifying this community that I really am not a part of and I, I can't really speak to personal experience with living within the Amish, but my impression... Overall, and there's no utopia, by the way, so I just want to disclaim that in general. I don't believe the Amish have a utopia, but I think what what distinguishes this aspect that Hans is talking about uh, with American society is that because the Amish have at, at their core, relative to us at least, this deeply principled religious uh, set of uh, values that is baked into how they interact with each other, I think it would not be allowed for a leader or someone, a layperson of the community to call someone out for being to be shunned to then start gloating about it and get on the young Turks or something and start yelling at you. I mean, this type, that's pride. That's, that's, that's a sin. You cannot act like that if you're a true Christian and no, you know, true Christian is, is ever, you know, without sin, of course, but, they have that built into the, into their culture and American culture does not have that at all. I mean, pride is probably the greatest sin of, of the United States. It's, it's a wrath. I mean, who knows, but it's uh, gluttony. 
you name it, but I would say pride is summarized. It's a lot all. to choose from. Yeah, no kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the great Satan, right? But the, 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 there's no boundaries on it in America. So you can get on television and start mocking your opponent and making fun of them and and people will applaud you. Oh, yeah, he's a boss. He's a beast. You know, look at that guy. Look at him go or look at her go. And uh, it's very nasty. Yeah. What'd you say, Hank? You've, uh, you've entered sicko mode. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, boomer. <laughs> what is that, Michael Moore of sicko? What, what was this? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I'm trying I've to cultivate the uh, the meme that I am uh, that I'm a 45 year old uh, year old boomer, implying that would be uh, implying, of course. I actually am a boomer for those that might uh, not be aware. <laughs> I've got um, a kayak on top of my uh, on top of my Yukon. <laughs> you listen to Nirvana. I haven't used it yet, but it's uh, it's strapped down tight. I think that makes you an English person, an Englishman. So just some closing thoughts. Um, if any of you have anything, jump in. But I just wanted to summarize sort of my main main observations and thoughts on the Amish uh, from tonight's discussion. Uh, I would say overall, they're, they're a very healthy uh, community. I mean, just from any metric, from terms of psychologically, physically, financially, uh, mentally healthy, like just their, their minds, their bodies, their communities, they seem to be going in a direction that is very positive. And that I think is something that we're not used to as Americans, at least in the last, uh, couple decades, if not more, whereby the whole American attitude and the reputation that America had was, it was sort of the land of opportunity and, this is an amazing place. We must come to America to improve our lives. Now, I guess that's still true for somebody who's coming from a place like Guatemala or where, wherever MS-13 is from. Uh, America is still better. But for those of us who grew up uh, in the 80s and the 90s, we, we remember a slightly better America than it is today. And so things are going in somewhat the opposite direction in old English land and the Amish seem to be headed in the right direction. And if nothing else, uh, just to be a third-party observer of two populations, and I get this from the Z-Man where he kind of said, if you're looking at two populations as a sort of a natural, uh, a naturalist or a biologist, and one, one, one population of birds uh, is not being able to replace its own population are being preyed upon by invasive species, are generally uh, unhappy. I don't know how you'd gauge that in a bird population, but they, they just seem to be stressed out and they're, they're, they're chirping frantically a lot. Uh, and then you have another bird population that is, is growing, that is flying freely, they're chirping happily. Uh, and it's no, it's, no, it's no debate as to what group of birds is doing better. And so if we're going to look at American society and look at ourselves in the mirror, honestly, we have to really question what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong and what are, what are, whatever we're doing wrong, uh, we need to look to those who are doing it right and maybe learn from them.